The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. And actually what I want to do is I want to start by reading the last sentence of chapter 14. So if you look at it, 14 and verse 31, last sentence, Jesus is speaking. And he says, rise, let us go from here. So ever since the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples have been in an upper room together celebrating the Passover. That's where they've been. He's washed their feet. He's begun teaching them. And he has been speaking some really difficult words to them, if you remember all that we've seen. He's told them that he's leaving and where he's going, they cannot follow. That's because we know he's going to die. He's told them that someone among them is going to betray them. We know that that is Judas. He's told them that they will all abandon him. As darkness descended outside the room, a darkness descended inside the room as well. Christ was speaking some very dark, difficult words. But, but even as the darkness descended, Christ proclaimed to his followers it was a darkness that would not win. Even if you remember, even as he spoke these difficult words to them, Jesus began to give them promise after promise so that their hearts would not be troubled. That was his echoing refrain all throughout chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. But believe in me. Believe my my promises. He, He gave them promises so that their hearts may not be troubled. So that when all around their soul gives way, he would then still be all their hope. And stay. It's what we just sang, right? But what I want us to see, what I think Jesus wants us to see in John 15, is, is that this is not all his promises aim to do. Christ's promises are not merely or only meant to calm the disciples' fears. They're further meant to empower them to action. There's two sides of the same coin. Calm the fear, empower them to action. I parent this way with promises, right? I give my kids promises not just to calm their fear, but to get them to do something. No, Talitha, you you don't have to be afraid of the dark. I'll give her all these promises. Try and calm her fear. Why? So that she will go up the stairs by herself and turn the lights on and I can be a lazy parent and not have to go up the stairs and turn the lights on for her, right? You give promises not just to calm fears, but to to empower action. We see that in Jesus' words. Rise, let us go from here. Let let us go out into the night. Let us go meet my betrayer that I've told you about. Let's, Let's go face to face with my death and my departure. Let's take it head on. I've just told you that Satan, the ruler of this world, is coming, but he has no claim on me, so let's go to meet him and defeat him, shall we? His aim is not just to calm their troubled hearts, but to empower them through the dark. And so, as soon as they step out into the night, he begins to give them a picture of what that looks like. What he's empowering them to live in the midst of the dark, he begins to give them a picture of what it looks like. John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus says, I'm going away, but, but I'm still going to be with you. I'm still going to provide. He, he said, remember in chapter 14, he said he's going to be with them through the Holy Spirit, empowering through the Holy Spirit. He's continuing that here. I'm still going to be with you. I'm still going to be providing for you day by day all that you need. And he compares it to the way a vine provides for a branch. This promise is meant to do more than calm a troubled heart. It's meant to empower them amidst the dark. Christ is not just calling them to survive the next night and the coming days. He's calling them to thrive in the middle of it. Like to put it in vine language, he's, he doesn't want them to be barren. He wants them to bear fruit. That's the emphasis throughout this entire passage. Verse 2, fruit-bearing branches are pruned. Why? To bear more fruit. Verse 5, because the branch remains in him, the branches that remain in him, they bear much fruit. Verse 8, God is glorified when we bear much fruit. In verse 16, Jesus says, I have chosen you so that you will go and bear fruit. It doesn't get more explicit than that. I'm aiming for you to thrive. I may be going away. That doesn't mean you're going to be barren. I want you to bear fruit. I want you to, to thrive. His promises are meant to do more than calm their troubled hearts. They're meant to fill their hearts with joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. This whole vine branch metaphor thing. I've told you this. So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Best verse in the passage, won't get to it for another two weeks. We're getting through five today, maybe. We're not even going to do everything in five. We're going to say some of it for next week. But Jesus says, amidst the night, I want you to be full of delight. I want you to bear fruit for God's glory and your joy. That's their purpose. How is it possible? Jesus says it is only possible by abiding in him. That's his answer. He gives it throughout the passage. Verse 4, abide in me. Verse 5, whoever abides in me. Verse 7, if you abide in me. Verse 9, abide in my love. Over and over again, Christ calls the disciples to abide. Like, like a branch in a vine. And that isn't just the call for these 11 disciples that are with him right here in this moment. No, it's the call for all of us who would ever follow Christ. We are to abide in him because he's called us to do the same thing he's called these 11 to do who were with him in the upper room. He's called us to rise. Let us go from here. Shades, week after week, he calls you out of this place. Rise, let us go from here. Morning by morning, he calls you out of your home. Rise, let us go from here. Out of your dorm room, or out of your apartment, or out of wherever. Rise, let us go. Let us go out from this place of relative safety. Let us go out into the night. Out into a world that loves darkness. And let's carry to them the light of the gospel. That's, that's the same call. He's put on our call. Christ calls us into the fray to abide in him day by day. Not merely so our hearts won't be troubled, but so that we will be filled with joy as our lives bear fruit to the glory of God. 
Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I want you to bear fruit for the glory of God. Verse 11, I want my joy. I've said all this to you so that my joy may be in you. He wants us to live bearing fruit for the glory of God and for that to be our heart's greatest joy. I want to know what does this look like? It all happens by abiding. So what is What does that look like? Because I've heard it explained a million times in a million different ways. If I'm honest with you, it always left me more confused than anything else. It also always left me feeling less than. Because abiding sounded like something that super awesome next level spiritual Christians do. Confession shades, I'm not a super awesome spiritual next level Christian. What does it look like to abide in Christ? That's our question. And Jesus answers it with three images. This is why we're going to take three weeks. We're going to take these images one at a time. There's a lot of details along the way, but he gives us three kind of big, overarching images of what it looks like to abide. He talks to us about a vine, a vine dresser, and branches. A vine, a vine dresser, and branches. So we'll tackle them one week at a time. Look at what each of them means, what, it, what, it, what, what each of them shows us about what it looks like to abide in Christ. So today let's focus on the vine. What does this image show us about abiding in Christ? So look with me again at John 15, verse 1. First five words, we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at verse five, and that's it. John 15, one. I am the true vine. So, throughout the Gospel of John, we've been in it for a hot minute now, and I hope that you recognize something right here that recurs throughout the Gospel. Jesus is making a particular form of a statement. It's an I am statement. He's done this six times already in this Gospel. This is the seventh one. It's the final one. I am the true vine. And as we've journeyed through those I am statements, in a lot of them, not all of them, but in a lot of them, Jesus has taken Old Testament imagery that his Jewish listeners would have understood, they would have been familiar with, he's taken it and he's applied it to himself. Or he's shown how he's the fulfillment of what that Old Testament image pointed to. So for instance, in John 6, he compared himself to the manna that God provided his people as they journeyed through the wilderness to eat this bread from heaven provided by God. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am what is truly provided by God from heaven for your life. I am the bread of life. In John 8, Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates or remembers the Hebrew people living in tabernacles as they traveled throughout the desert. And one of the things that they did at that festival was they had dances with torches that reminded them of how God led the people through the wilderness as a pillar of fire at night. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus speaks in John 8 and says, I am the light of the world. I am the light that, follow, that you follow and that, that leads you through the wilderness of this world on the way to what has been promised to you. I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, Jesus picked up the Old Testament image of God's people as sheep. And God is a shepherd and he said, I am 
the good shepherd. Again and again, Jesus has claimed to be the I am, the God of the Old Testament, present in the flesh, and he's done it by applying Old Testament imagery to himself. He's doing the same thing here. In this seventh and final I am statement, I am the true vine, Jesus is picking up an Old Testament image of the vine. In the the Old Testament, the nation of Israel itself was often pictured as a vine, a vine planted by God. You can read about it in places like Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15, or Psalm 80. I'll just read you a little bit. Psalm 80. You, speaking to God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. It's an image of God bringing his people out of Israel, plant, excuse me, out of Egypt, planting them in the promised land of Israel. And they, they bloom and grow all over the place. Israel is the, the vine. Probably the most famous or infamous passage in the Old Testament that compares Israel with a vine comes from Isaiah chapter 5. It's in the form of a song. It says, my beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Speaking of God as a vine dresser. You see where Jesus picks his imagery up from. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared it of stones. And he planted it with choice vines. God was this loving vine dresser, caring for his people, planting them in this promised land, tending to them. Israel was God's vine. And thus, the vine became a a national symbol for the nation of Israel. You can think of it kind of like the bald eagle is a national symbol of America. In fact, there were different periods in Israel's history where they actually minted coins with a vine on them. Kind of like we used to mint quarters with an eagle on them. Even in Jesus' day, there, the vine imagery was still all over the place. The most, the most prominent place was the temple. So you can, you can imagine Jesus just said, rise, let us go from here. He and his disciples, they're leaving this upper room. They're on the way to the Mount of Olives right outside the city where the Garden of Gethsemane is. They have to pass by the temple. How do I know that? Because it doesn't matter where you are in the city of Jerusalem. You have to pass by the temple. And from the Mount of Olives, you can see it, massive in your view. Maybe it says they pass by this temple and they they look at it. The main entrance to the temple had these these columns, this kind of portico around it as a border around the door. And wrapped around the columns and draped across was literally a vine made of gold. And its fruit clusters were jewels. It's a symbol of Israel. Approaching the presence of God. Perhaps it's, it's as they pass that site that Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine. The, the true alethanos, true, genuine, the true For for his disciples, there's no mistaking what he means by throwing in that word, true, genuine. Jesus is saying, I am the true Israel. I I am the genuine Israel. Why does he say that? How had the nation of Israel not been true? 
not been the genuine people of God. Again, the Old Testament imagery helps us out because if you go to all those passages I mentioned that talk about Israel as a vine, they don't just talk about Israel as a vine being planted by God and they're supposed to grow and bear fruit to bless the world. If you keep reading, the imagery shows us that Israel failed to do that. They failed to do what God had planted them to do, namely to grow and spread life to the world. The life of God. They were to be rooted in God. Spread his life to the world. They they failed in that mission. Just listen to Isaiah 5 again. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild. Psalm 80 is the same way. It depicts God's judgment against his rebellious vineyard, Israel. And in Psalm 80, the psalmist laments, Why then have you broken down the vineyard's walls, so that all who pass along the the way pluck its fruit, the boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it? Why have you judged us so... Every place you find Israel represented as a vine, you will find that it ultimately turns into a negative picture. The vine yields wild grapes or no grapes at all. The vine dresser destroys his vineyard in judgment. Righteous, right, wrath. In Ezekiel chapter 15, he gives it up to be burned. That sounds like familiar imagery out of John 15, does it not? It's a graphic depiction of the reality that Israel did not do what it was planted to do. Be a life-giving vine to the world, bearing fruit throughout the world. Israel, fallen and sinful just like us, failed. Not trying to paint Israel in a bad picture. Israel serves as a mirror for me and for you and for all of us. Israel failed like we do. And so, we need a true vine that we can be connected to. And in this final I am statement of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Where Israel failed, I will succeed. I will be planted by my Father to be a life-giving vine for the world. And I will bear fruit through all who are connected to me. Isn't that exactly what's about to happen? Planted by his father to grow into a life-bearing vine throughout the, the world? Is this not the exact fulfillment of what Jesus has already said in this gospel? If you remember back to John chapter 12 and verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is about to die. Like a grain of wheat, he will be planted in the earth in a tomb, and he will rise as the life-giving vine to bear much fruit. I am the true vine. Do you see what Jesus is saying to his disciples? 
They thought that by being connected to the vine of Israel, they were connected to God. They had true life in God. Jesus says, no, I am the true Israel. I am the true vine. The only way to have true life is to be connected to me. Don't trust your ethnic heritage. Don't trust that you're an Israelite. Israel's not the true vine that can provide you with true life. And Shades, Christ says the same thing to us. You, right now, this morning. Don't trust that you attend Shades Valley. Or that you're a member of Shades Valley. Ooh, super shades. Don't. Don't trust. Shades is not the true vine that can provide you with true life. Don't trust your own morality. I'm basically a good person. I watch YouTube. I read the comment section. There are a lot worse people out there than me. If you don't read comments on YouTube, bless you. Stay pure. Keep the course. I'm, I'm a good person. Your morality is not the true vine that can provide you with true life. Don't trust in or depend upon your spouse to provide you with true life. Or for all of you who are single, don't trust that finding a spouse will provide you with true life. Just just live with a married couple for a little bit. Like, Like, another person can't do that for you. They're not the true vine. Having kids will not provide you with true life. College students, you're all on a path to get a degree, to get a career. Having a successful career cannot provide you with true life. Money can't, sex can't, power can't. Only Christ is the true vine that provides life. We put our faith in Christ and Christ alone. Trust in him. Treasure him as our life. Depend on him like a branch depends on a vine. Branch depends upon a vine to pour all of its provision, everything it needs to pour all of its provision into all all the life that it, it needs so that it bears fruit. We depend upon Christ to pour his life into us so that we bear fruit. This is what it looks like to abide. I'll put it in a statement for you. I'm gonna do this each week. What does it look like to abide? To abide looks like depending upon the Son's internal provision. I'm going to unpack that. To abide looks like depending upon the Son's internal provision. I hope you can already see that from where we've gone, but if not, I hope that it really becomes clear as we go through verse 5. All right, I've chosen... Each of those words in that sentence carefully, and there are three things in that sentence that I want to zoom in on. First, to abide looks like depending. What do I mean by that? Why did I choose that word? What do I mean by depending? I think verse 5 helps us out. For there, Christ describes his vineness. If I can make up a word. Describes his vineness in more detail. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in 
me. That's what we're going to focus on. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, whoever abides in me. The Greek word for abide is minnow, not like little minnow that you fish with. Totally different. Minnow. It literally means to remain, to stay, to persevere in, to live in. It's it's a word that pictures, when you go through its definition, it pictures total dependence. Stay here, remain here, I'm going to live here, I'm going to abide here. It's a word that pictures total dependence. Dependence. Isn't that what the relationship between a vine and a branch communicates to us? A relationship of total dependence. I mean, a branch totally depends upon a vine for life. It cannot survive on its own. That's what Jesus said at the end of verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't survive. So you got two options here. There is abiding, depending upon Jesus, that leads to life. And there's not abiding, not depending on Jesus. It leads to death and judgment. The dead branches, we're told, are cut off, gathered, and burned. We'll talk about that more next week. They're cut off, gathered, and burned because they're not living branches. They're not true believers in Jesus. They're not true disciples of Christ. All throughout this gospel... John, our author, has labored to show us that there is such a thing as false faith. There's such a thing as believers who aren't really believers, as disciples who aren't really disciples. We saw believers who aren't truly believers clearly back in John chapter 6. People that looked like they placed faith in Christ and left. We saw disciples who were not truly disciples in John chapter 8. People who claim to be disciples of Christ, and Christ says to them in John chapter 8, if you abide in my word, there's that word again, abide, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. In other words, you can appear to be my disciple, but there's a true mark of a disciple. A disciple abides, remains, stays, depends. In all of these places I've just talked about, John, our author, labors to show us the difference between false faith and true faith, and right here he's doing it again. And what he shows us is true faith depends on Jesus. Like a branch depends on a vine. True faith depends on Jesus. This is massively important to me because this is not how most people think about faith. Most people think about faith as mere mental agreement. I believe something. I agree with that. I say it's true. That is not biblical faith. John's laboring to show you that because that mistake that we make now thinking that faith is mere mental agreement, it's a mistake that people made then. Faith isn't saying that you believe in Jesus and and merely mentally agreeing with some facts about him. Sure, Jesus is the son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, died, rose again to be the true vine. I agree with all of that. Great. So does Satan. Biblical faith is not mere mental agreement. It is a deep, dependent affection. Not mere mental agreement. It is deep, dependent 
affection. Biblical faith loves Jesus. Not just I affirm facts, they stir up affection. I love Jesus. I treasure Jesus. I want him. I depend on him. Like a branch depends on a vine. He's my life. Without him, I'm dead. That's biblical faith. And this is such a big deal to me because growing up, I mentioned this earlier, growing up, abiding in Christ was always taught to me like it was something in addition to faith in Christ. Like you could believe in Jesus, but abiding in him, that's next level Christianity. It's like player one, level up, level two. Like, and if you figure out, because it's like a, it's like a esoteric secret, you gotta like get all up in that knowledge of what abiding means. And if you figure it out, then you become that super spiritual, awesome Christian. I confess to you already, I am not a super spiritual, awesome Christian. I fail. A lot. I fall. A lot. And any teacher or anyone who tells you otherwise is either lying or self-deceived. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But, it's good news, but if we confess our sins, he, Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why the fact that I fail and fall a lot doesn't crush me. Because I can confess and he is faithful even when I'm faithless. Faithful to cleanse me, to forgive me from all unrighteousness. Abiding is not next level Christianity. It's plain old regular daily Christianity that depends on Jesus. That, that's what 1 John 1, 9 confessed. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what that's about. Regular daily Christianity that depends on Jesus. It, it, in, in confessing my sins... In repenting, I'm turning from trusting in me, from depending on me, to trusting in Jesus. Depending upon him. Do you see that? Repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. Repentance, turning from self-dependence. Faith, depending upon Christ. 1 John 1.9 describes that as the regular pattern of the Christian life. Confess my sins and turn for myself, and I trust in Christ. I confess my sins and I turn and trust in Christ. I repent and I believe. I repent and I believe. This is the in, out, breath, oxygen of the Christian faith. This is the breathing of abiding. How do I abide in Christ? I am constantly turning from depending on me to depend upon Him. And when the monk Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, this was thesis number one. I'll read it to you word for word, but not in German. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, 
He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What does he mean? That our entire life is just, I'm a horrid sinner. Woe is me. I always need to repent. I loathe myself. This is me whipping myself at self-flagellation. I had a seminary professor that would do that all the time. I loathe myself. No, he means that the regular Christian life is one of joyously, joyously turning from self. That's what repentance is, turning from self to depend upon Christ. That's the whole of the Christian life, day by day. Breathe it in, breathe it out, abide, depend. Life of turning from self to depend on Christ. That's a life of abiding. That's a life of true faith. And it is something all Christians do. This is not next level Christianity. There is no such thing as next level Christianity. No such thing. That's like saying there's next-level marriage. Like Holly and I are doing premarital counseling with several couples in our body right now. Could you imagine if on the day they got married, we were like, congratulations, because you're married and all. But you're not as married as us. Because we're, we've been married 14 years. We're on like level 14 of this marriage thing. All right, if we're honest, we're more on like level two, but that's beside the point. And you, you're just on level one. Well, y'all just got married. Y'all are on level zero. One day you'll be as married as us, and then you'll be really married. Oh, that's absurd. Like none of those sentences even make sense because there's no next level marriage, and there is no next level Christianity. Sure, there are varying degrees of maturity, as a Christian. I hope that Holly and I have grown in maturity in our marriage. I hope it's more mature than somebody who's just starting out. I love listening to Brad talk about his marriage troubles. They're all his fault. Jordan, you're perfect. I love it because it makes me feel like Holly and I have come so far. We're so mature. There are varying degrees of maturity, but Holly and I are not more married than Brad and Jordan. They are every bit as much man and wife. And you can be a more mature Christian, but you cannot be more Christian. All Christians abide in Christ, whether you know it or not. Because this is what the Christian life is, turning from depending upon self to depend on Christ. It's what it is whether you could put these words to it or not. All Christians abide in Christ. What does that look like? It looks like depending. You can grow in that depending. I think that's why Jesus gives us this, this text. And I hope that over the next couple of weeks we will grow. And I know this week, getting a lot of theology, there's going to be a lot of theology in a lot of these weeks because it's just packed and it's dense. By the time we get to last week, we will get extremely practical, I promise. But I hope that this causes us to grow as we see how it is that we abide 
in Christ? What does it look like? It looks like depending upon Jesus. Not perfectly, but truly. I love Holly, my wife. Not perfectly, but truly. You depend upon Christ truly for your life as a branch depends on a vine. To abide looks like depending, but that's not all we said. Second thing I wanted us to zoom in on real quick. These next two are shorter. To abide looks like depending upon the Son's internal, that's our focus, upon the Son's internal provision. What do I mean by internal? Like why didn't I just say provision? Abiding is depending upon the Son's provision. I said internal because of verse 5. Look at it again. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, that's what we just looked at, depends on me. Whoever abides in me, and I in him. I say internal because what Christ is providing us with is himself. I, giving you me, I in him. Or her. Here's the problem. When you start talking about Christ providing, people get all sorts of ideas about what that means. And usually it looks like using Jesus to get things. Not Jesus, but stuff. Husband, wife, kids, cars, finance. Like you mean if I depend upon Jesus? He'll provide, like whatever I want. And they'll even do something like rip verse 7 out of context. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Whatever I wish, says it right there in the text, black and white. We're going to see exactly what that means in the coming weeks. I know, I'm just teasing you with all the big pieces, right? We're going to see what that means in the coming weeks. But what verse 5 makes clear is that Christ is promising to provide us himself. This is not an external provision of stuff or a promise for an external provision of certain circumstances. It's an internal provision of the person we need even when we lack the external stuff. Even when the external circumstances are horrid as they're about to be for these disciples. He's not promising them that things are about to get pretty. He's promising them a person. He's promising them himself. Like a vine that pours its very life into a branch so that it bears fruit. That's what Jesus does. He pours himself, his very life, into us. I think verse 11 confirms that I'm on the right track. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. My joy in you. I'm pouring my joy. We'll get into the specifics of this in a couple of weeks. It's awesome, but we'll get there. I'm pouring my joy, my very joy into you to transform you. To transform what you enjoy. So you enjoy the things that I enjoy in the way that I enjoy them. You will bear thus, you will bear the fruit of joy. He talks about this in more ways than just with joy. In chapter 14, he's already talked about giving us his peace so that we bear the fruit of peace. All throughout chapters 13 to 15, he talks about giving us his love and we're to abide in his love so that we bear the fruit of love. Love. 
joy, peace. That sounds like the beginning of a familiar list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5.22 calls those the, the, the what? Fruit. Curious. The fruit of the Spirit. We are to abide in Christ, depend on Him, so that in us, by His Spirit, which He just talked about in chapter 14, He's going to talk about again in chapter 16, in us, by His Spirit, He is bringing about a transformation, an internal transformation so that we bear fruit. He's changing us to be more like Him, to enjoy with His joy and bear the fruit of joy to love with his love and bear the fruit of love, love as he loves, to have peace like he has peace and bear the fruit of peace. It's an internal transformation because Christ is pouring himself into us. He is, in other words, another way to say it is he is providing us with power. It's not our power. He's providing us with power to enjoy the way he enjoys, to love the way he loves, to have peace the way He's providing us with power. That that takes us to our third and final thing. Third and final thing. We have said that to abide in Christ looks like depending upon the Son's internal provision. Last thing, provision. What do I mean by provision? I actually just gave us the answer two seconds ago. I said that Christ is providing us with power. Where do I get that? Look at verse 5 again. Yes, Robert, you are on track. It does come from the Spirit. Where do I get it in the text that Christ is providing us with power? Look at verse 5 again. Last time. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, here's the result of me abiding in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, You can do nothing. Abide in me, depend upon me, and you bear much fruit. Apart from me, no fruit. Christ is providing the power for fruit bearing. I don't know how it could be any clearer. That's the difference between whether we abide in him or not, is whether or not power is provided for fruit bearing. This this is authentic Christianity, right? This is what true faith looks like. This is abiding in Christ. You depend on him. He provides the power to transform your heart and you bear fruit. Apart from him, none of that happens. He says it in the most dramatic way. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know about you. But when I read that, I want to be like, nothing? No, sounds a little extreme, Jesus. Like, back off on the hyperbole there for just a second. I mean, I know plenty of people who don't abide in Jesus who do something. I know, I know plenty of people who don't abide in Christ who do good things. They don't depend on Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't have faith in Jesus. They're not branches connected to the vine, yet they seem to get along just fine. They do lots of things, good things. Their life seems to have good fruit. I mean, non-Christians 
build hospitals. They, they adopt children. Be upstanding citizens. They can be moral, live moral lives. Dare I say that even some of them seem to demonstrate what I would call love, joy, peace. Seems to me like apart from Christ, you can bear plenty of good fruit. But the question is, what makes the fruit good? What makes the fruit good? Is the fruit just being a good person or doing good things? That's not the way that Jesus nor the rest of the New Testament talk about fruit bearing. Fruit bearing in the Bible is never primarily a matter of the what, but the why. It's not primarily a matter of the what, what you're doing, but why. A couple of examples. Uh, in Matthew 7, one of the most frightening passages in the entire New Testament, Matthew 7, Jesus describes people who prophesy in his name, who cast out demons in his name, and do all sorts of kind of mighty works in his name. But he says, one day, you know what I'm going to say to these people? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus looks at prophesying demon exorcism and mighty works and calls it lawlessness. The issue was not what they did, but why they did it. They didn't know Christ. They weren't bearing fruit for his glory. They were workers of lawlessness. In other words, they did what they did for their own glory. And even if you want to say that some people can be selfless and they're not all selfish and doing it for themselves, the Bible portrays anything done other than unto the glory of God as sin. Paul says whatever is not of faith is sin. Because it's being done in rejection of God. Everything was designed to be for him in his glory. To do it any other way is to do it in rejection of him. That's, that's sin. Issue's not what these people did, but, but why they did it for their own glory. Jesus says the same thing more than once in the Gospel of John about the Pharisees. We've seen it over and over again. I mean, you'd have to try really hard to find someone more moral than the Pharisees. These people tithed out of their spice rack. I don't see any of you like bringing 10% of your deal in cumin here on Sunday morning and being like, well, there that goes in the basket. Please don't. You have to try to find, but really hard to find someone more moral than the Pharisees. No one was committed more to good works and purity than they were. Yet in John 5 and in John 12, Jesus says they do all that they do, not for the glory of God, but because they love receiving glory from men. Love to be praised, lauded, looked well upon. Bearing fruit is not merely doing good things. No, bearing fruit is being transformed into a person who does what they do for the glory of God. Logically, that can only be done by His power. If you're living in your power, you get the glory, the credit, you're doing it. But if you're depending upon the power of Christ flowing into you from the vine so that you as a branch bear fruit, then he gets the glory for every piece of fruit that is born. Because it's not your fruit. It's his. 
It's the work of his spirit. It's the fruit of the spirit. For it's done in the power that God provides for the glory of God. It comes from a transformed heart. Apart from Christ, you cannot bear that kind of fruit. You must depend upon him. The branches must depend upon the vine. This is what it looks like to abide. We are depending upon the Son's internal provision. Are you? That's the question for each of us to ask. Are, are you depending? Not perfectly, but truly. Are you, are you depending? Is your faith mere mental agreement or is it deep dependent affection? Affection for Christ, dependence upon him to provide all the power that you need to live a life bearing fruit for him. If not, then my question becomes, what is your vine that you are connected into? In whom or in what are you depending? Not the person, success, career, yourself. Like, here is the simple call of Christ for you. Come to me and abide. Turn and trust. Repent and believe. He is the true vine. There is no other. He's the only source of life. Because like a grain that falls to the ground and dies so that it may bear much fruit, Christ died on the cross, taking upon your sin, my sin, our death that we deserved, died upon the cross, was buried in the ground and rose to bear much fruit as the living vine. He is the only source of true life. Trust in him. Treasure him. Depend on him. Abide in Christ. The true vine.